We will be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 through chapter 13, verse 13. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If you speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, okay, um, the first time this passage was read, um, this may come as a surprise to some of us, it wasn't read at a wedding with a newlywed couple gazing into each other's eyes, hearing marriage, right? Marriage is what brings us together. No, that wasn't it at all. It was a normal, everyday Sunday morning gathering of an urban church in the first century. And their first thought when they heard the passage wasn't, Oh, you think we can stencil that above our bathtub, Harold, right? No, that's not their first thought. It was probably more along the lines of, who do you think you are, Paul? Why? Because Paul is actually challenging the core motivation behind why they're doing everything they're doing in the church, especially when it comes to their spiritual gifts. Over this past few weeks, we've noticed a trend that Paul wants us to know God cares deeply about what we do with our spiritual gifts we've been given. And if you're new or you haven't been here the past couple weeks or you forgot, just so we have some shared language, a spiritual gift is a spirit-empowered ability freely given to the Christian for the purpose of serving others, building up the church, and the common good of all. And this little urban church in the first century, they totally missed the mark. 
You know, Corinth was one of those rare cities in the ancient world where upward social mobility was possible. Downward social mobility is possible everywhere. You can go from a general down to the prison cell like that, almost anywhere. But upward social mobility, that's rare. And like Memphis attracts musicians and L.A. attracts filmmakers, people move to Corinth to become great, to make a name for themselves. And really great things were happening in this church in Corinth, okay? Because of the kind of city it was, this church was full of talented, brilliant, successful people. And we hear that there are these great things going on. People are getting healed. There are miracles happening. And Paul says, look, even though you've got these amazing things going on, even though you may leverage your spiritual gifts to really do some dynamite stuff, you can do all of that and still be nothing. Across history, the, the word greatness has had many names, right? It's powerful, um, successful, famous, awesome. Um, and across history, every one of us and every person within humankind is easily seduced by the self-destructive motivation of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Anybody here read The Atlantic magazine? Here we go. We got a couple readers. Um, <clears throat> well, there was an article in this month's issue called "Why It Pays to Be a Jerk," <laughs> and they're wrestling through kind of the age-old question: In business, do nice guys really finish last? You know what their answer was? Sometimes. <laughs> Thanks. Right. Um, what they're pretty much saying is kindness, love, is not a core competency of success. As they interviewed thousands of business leaders. And so, for example, they bring up Steve Jobs, a creative genius who spent his life building a technological empire in Apple, and yet everyone knows he was a bona fide jerk, right? He was brilliant. He got results. But I guess a kind persona is just a little extra icing on the cake. And so you have CEOs who are gobbling up this newer biography. It's been around for a little while. And actually embodying his tactics towards greatness with ruthlessness. And that's what's really bringing up this question, why it pays to be a jerk. Another example is Donald Trump, right? The financially savvy investor who's made millions through real estate. But if you were to ask any one of his ex-wives or any one of his current employees, um, it's pretty, we're pretty confident that none of them would describe him as loving, right? The Donald is not necessarily loving. And this kind of persona, this ruthless desire towards greatness hasn't stopped at the church doors. It's leaked in. Some of you may have heard this story, and it's a haunting story of the megachurch pastor this past year who was a leader among men, gifted in speaking, pure morally, had a flourishing church of some 13,000 campuses across the nation, and his megachurch disintegrated. Why? mainly because everyone who came in contact with him thought he was a total jerk. And it raises the question for each and every one of us this morning, what do you want to be? Do you want to be seen as awesome or do you want to be loving? Do you want to be seen as awesome or do you want to be loving? And look, of course, everybody wants both, (laughs) right? But the world's a little more messy than that. What's more important? What will really satisfy You know, honestly, I've thought about that question this past week. And for me, it's worked its way out in a couple practical questions. You know, 
later on in life, do I want my children to think I've provided every advantage for them? Or do I want them to know I love them with all my heart? Now, we desire both of those things, but there are key moments throughout the week where we have to make a decision on which we'll actually choose for the ultimate. It'll shape the way, or it impacts the way I shape my week if one of those is the ultimate over against the other. If I'm writing a sermon, and my ultimate goal is that after the sermon, people say, that sermon was awesome. Over against, you know that I love you and that God loves you and his gospel is for your good. Those two motivations will lead to two very different sermons and how they're presented and how they're preached and even how they're written. What about you? Do you want to be a loving person most or do you want to be seen as an awesome person? In your work, in your home, in your various spheres of influence, in your family, And what we find here with Paul is he says, look, in everyday life, whenever life gives you the option, love trumps awesome every time. Contra the Atlantic article, love trumps awesome every time. And this morning as we walk through our text, we're going to see three reasons as to why that is groundbreakingly true, okay? Now the first reason, the first reason why this is true The first reason as to why um, love trumps awesome every time is because love is better than greatness. Love is better than greatness intrinsically, qualitatively, okay? So when you look in chapter 12, Paul kind of gives these lists of gifts that Micaiah and Mira did so beautifully in reading for us. This list of gifts. And then when you get to chapter 12, verse 31, Paul writes this. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. What does that mean? We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to focus on the second half of this verse. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Here it is. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, oftentimes we can come to this passage and interpret what Paul says through this refrain where he says, and if I have not love, we can read, and if I have not love with someone, then I'm nothing. And maybe that's why we love reading this passage at weddings. But Paul's not being romantic here, okay? Instead, what Paul is saying is that if, if you're not a loving person, if your core motivation isn't love, you can think you're prime time, but in God's economy, you're a zero. And he starts walking through the spiritual gifts that this church has been given, and he starts with the one that the church in Corinth was having the biggest issue with, and that's the gift of tongues. Now, and I get why the church in Corinth had put tongues kind of on their hierarchy. If I'm sitting next to someone and they have this special prayer language between them and God, I instantly start thinking, man, I don't have the same sort of intimacy with God that they do. As they're praying, they have this special language between them and God. Well, what about me? And well, of course, they're more spiritual than I am. And so I could see how they would get there. But Paul says, look, even if you have that experience where you have this special prayer language and you're there talking with God, if you don't have love in your heart, It's just symbols falling down the stairs. 
It's fuzz on your radio. It's noise. Then he goes on to say, hey, look, you may have prophetic gifts. You've got special insight into the mysteries of what God is doing. You understand God's will in a very unique way. You have faith that emboldens you to do great things for God. And if you don't have love, who cares? You may be a radical person with your generosity. And you may even be the kind of person that you sell everything you have at some point in your life and you give it all away. But if you don't have love, it's worthless. Maybe you're really zealous for the gospel and you're, and you're thinking, you know what? If I was in the position and I had to die for my faith, even if I had to be burned alive at the stake for Jesus, I would do it. Paul says, okay, but if you don't have love in your heart, that's worthless. And that's pretty daunting, isn't it? And what we find here is in a trend, as, as Paul's listing out these gifts, is that God can be working in and through you to do some pretty amazing things. But the quiet, behind-the-scenes work of love, 10 out of 10 times, will always trump any form of greatness. Why? Because greatness without love is nothing. Greatness without love is nothing. And deep down, we know this. Even though we long to be great, deep down, we know this. I want you to fast forward to your funeral. How many ever days or months or, well, hopefully it's not days, but months, years, and so on, <laughs> down the way. Wow, that got real serious, didn't it? Um, <laughs> and I want you to imagine, <laughs> let's try to get ourselves back together after that one. I want you to imagine, you know, what you once said at your eulogy. As family and friends stand over your coffin and talk about your legacy, what's most important then? Do you want to be remembered as successful or loving? For example, oh, he was a cold man, but he kept the business open. You know, she wasn't one for pleasantries, but she could stretch a dollar. Nobody wants that said about them at their funeral. Even the ones that are the most prickly in our lives, we go searching for some story so we can tell something positive and compassionate at the time of their funeral, right? We all know this. We don't want to hear the words farewell. Every one of us longs to hear, don't go. Because at the moment of our funeral, nobody's going to care how awesome you were. They're going to care about how you loved them. About how you loved them. And it's with this sort of insight that Paul's saying, hey, look, Love is better than greatness. So when you come to your spiritual gifts, that should transform how we as a church think about serving one another and the gifts that God has given us. Um, if you're new, we've provided this uh, spiritual gifts test. Um, it's not like you're going to get an A plus or an F, okay? You're not going to flunk it. That's not what I mean by test. But it's an assessment of sorts. And if you want to go online, it's still up there. And I'd encourage you to do it. You're going to answer some questions and then it'll give you kind of their three best um, suggestions as to what your top three spiritual gifts are. It's not to be a final say, but a starting point for conversation within community, for affirmation, and even disagreement with that assessment. But I don't know about you, but when I took the assessment this time around, um, I went looking for something. I went looking for affirmation of my greatness. I went looking for the ways in which I'm made awesome. I went looking for the ways in which I have worth. Oh, good, I got teaching. You know, like, oh, <laughs> otherwise I got to find a new job, you know. <clears throat> but the question I didn't ask, and maybe you're not as self-centered as me, but the question I didn't ask from the get-go was, okay, 
That's what this assessment is saying. Now, how can I love others with these? How can I love others with these? That wasn't my first question. Probably wasn't even my third. How do they know these are what these are? You know. <clears throat> and that's what Paul's trying to get at. That's what he's pushing us towards. He's saying, don't you get it? Love trumps awesome every time. Love is better than greatness because every form of greatness is nothing without love. Nothing. Nothing. And I want you to take, what does he say? The more excellent way. The way of love. Okay, Paul, I get it, all right? So what is love? What's love got to do, got to do with it, right? <laughs> and what do, what do warm feelings and fuzzies have to do with any of this? And here's what we can't miss what Paul's trying to communicate here. This is the second reason why love trumps awesome every time. It's because love is better than warm feelings. Love is better than warm feelings. And even as I see some head nods around it's so hard to live that way, isn't it? It's so hard to live that way. And our culture doesn't communicate that to us. You know, I took a stab at rewriting verses four through seven, how I think our culture would portray love and how we actually live into it in our culture. And so if our culture were to write verses four through seven, this is what I think how our culture would define love. Love holds on until it doesn't. Love says whatever you want to hear. Love should be easy, and its goal is to grow my happiness. Love is irritable when you forget that and resentful when you don't sacrifice enough to supply that. Love is surprised at disagreement and rejoices, and I told you so. Love bears some things, maybe most things, but not that one thing. Love believes what it wants to believe, thank you very much. But don't expect love to endure all things. And it's with this prevalent definition of love. It's no wonder that we have rampant episodes of divorce. Family ties are severed. Churches are split. Friendships fizzle. It's because we've made love into something it was never designed to be. The self-centered emotionalism. You know, philosophers actually have a word that describes that. It's called narcissism. Where it's all about my feelings my comfort, my wants, my needs, me, 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 incessantly running on repeat. And look, there's an important place even for understanding self-care and how our needs should be engaged within a loving relationship. The error isn't in understanding that's a part of the puzzle. It's that we've made it all important, the whole puzzle, me at the center, at the beginning and at the end. And that's what's happening here in this church in Corinth. They're coming not expecting to love one another, but they're coming expecting to serve themselves. Having these grand experiences as a way to get another affirmation that they really are great. To get another big compliment that they are someone who's important. To finally come and live on and even manipulate their spiritual gifts as an avenue to uphold their high that they really are awesome. The feeling of greatness. But what does Paul say instead in verses 4 through 7? He says, love is what? Patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes 
all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is all-encompassing, isn't it? You see, what Paul's saying is revolutionary. Love is better than warm feelings. Love is a decision. I want you to imagine you're in a rowboat. And love is the action of rowing. Every now and then, your emotion is like the current. And you're rowing with the current. And you feel like you're making big strides, right? Like, man, I'm traveling. We're moving. But then sometimes emotions shift. And we feel like we're rowing against the current. The white caps start coming over the front of the boat. And we feel like we're not going anywhere. Love keeps rowing and rows and rows. And that's where so many actually give up and say, I can't do this anymore. I don't feel it anymore. And the hard and heartbreaking reality is that where, that's where love really strengthens its muscles. That's where love becomes stronger. That's where love is seen to be what it is, love. And now we start to even understand how Christ is in his right mind when he says, love your enemies. How is that possible? Except for when you're rowing against the current, a current that almost sometimes costs us our life. Why else does Paul start here? When he's defining love, the very first word he uses is patience. You know what that word in Greek means? Long-suffering. Oh, love is suffering. (laughs) That's awesome. Long after the emotion is gone, love rose on. And it chooses kindness. It doesn't envy the good things that are happening in other people's lives that we wished would happen in ours. It doesn't boast in the good things that have happened in our lives that haven't happened in others. Love's goal isn't meeting my needs. And it forgives quickly so that we don't grow resentful or irritable. It's not quiet when truth-filled intervention needs to take place. Truth and love are not enemies, but they're the best when they're together. Love is a choice of how to see things, right? We all come with lenses and relationships, but love is a choice in how to see things, how to hope in others, how to stand beside each other even when the current is pulling you apart. That's love. And the question remains, and this is where it gets real, are we willing to work for it? Are we willing to work for it? And that feels daunting right after reading this passage, doesn't it? I know how selfish I am. I don't know about you. But when I read this list, I feel hopeless. Left to my own devices, I feel tossed to and fro by my emotions instead of the steady rowing of love. And the good news is, And this is in the context of the wider letter of 1 Corinthians we've been walking through is that God doesn't leave us to our own devices. When we began to follow Jesus, he gave us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us who not only gives us spiritual gifts, but as we see in other letters that Paul writes, the Spirit is making us into a kind of person, a loving person who actually knows how to steward these good gifts in love. So maybe... Maybe a way to strengthen our love muscles individually and as a congregation is we can go about this Panera style, okay? Um, You can do a you pick two. (laughs) First, I want you to pray and remember that God's working in you and that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. But then pick two of these out of the list and say, okay, today, this week, I'm going to choose kindness 
when my boss feels overbearing. Today, this week, I'm not going to be envious. Normally in those situations, when I see a loving couple, I start getting so angry because I ask, why didn't I get that? Instead, I'm going to celebrate what God's given them. I'm going to ask, why did they get, instead of asking, why did they get that job and I didn't get that job, I'm going to celebrate for them. Instead of boasting in myself and what the good gifts I've been given, I'm going to quietly praise God for those things. Today, this week, I'm going to fill in the blank. And here's a tip. If you don't know where to start, ask your spouse. <laughs> ask your kids. Ask your friends. Ask your coworkers. Ask your community group. I'm sure they're eager to help you out, right? Are we willing to work for love? But we can't stop here or we're going to be crushed. We're going to burn out way, way too soon. One of the greatest reasons love trumps awesome every time is because love's only going to get better. Maybe you're here this morning and you're starving for love. Take comfort. Maybe this morning you feel like you're in a relationship and you're at the height of love. Take joy because love is only going to get better. What do I mean? Look with me now at verses 8 through 13. Love never ends. What Paul isn't saying is that love is never painful. He doesn't, he's not saying that. And he doesn't say every love we've ever had will never end. But this kind of love that he's talking about never ends. As for prophecies, though, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, I love this, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Every spiritual gift we've been given, and we need to understand this, and this is nuanced, but it has a shelf life. It has a shelf life. One commentator has spoken about it this way. Okay, we've been given imperfect gifts for an imperfect world. They've been tailor-made for our broken world. So when the perfect comes, they're rendered unnecessary. They're rendered unnecessary. The big question revolves in the big debate, even within Christian churches across the country and the world, is what does Paul mean when he says, when the perfect comes, right? What is the perfect? Well, as I've wrestled through the passage, this is where I've landed. I find it most compelling to actually see it when Jesus himself returns. When Jesus returns, and finally, everything we've hoped for in Christ will be the forever present. Every bit of faith will finally become every bit of sight. No longer will we live face to book, but face to face with Jesus. And you know what that means? Every bit of great love we've ever experienced, whether it be the self-sacrifice of a parent, the dedication of a spouse, the persistent care of a friend, that'll be mere child's play compared to what God has in store for his people for eternity. Isn't that amazing? It blows my mind to think about a God who's got that much in store for us. Love is only going to get better. I love the way Paul talks about 
to, to fully know as we've already been fully known and fully loved. I've had conversations with multiples of you here in the church where you say, you know what, Gabe, I think one of my biggest struggles is I have no idea how to receive love. I don't even know what it means to know love and to feel love. I feel like I've got so many barriers in my heart from past wounds. Well, there's a day coming where you'll no longer have to hide behind fear or shame or sin or a facade of greatness, but you'll stand before God and finally fully know what it means to be fully known and fully loved. Love unfiltered, unadulterated, received, and been able now to give back to God and to others. But one of the greatest gifts we can miss out on when we're reading this passage, yes, hear that love is going to get better, hold on to that promise, but what we can miss is actually that this love is available today, here, now to be received, and now to be given. You know, the Apostle Paul, he wants us to know, and he says it in chapter 14, verse 1. What does he say? Pursue love. Pursue love today is the emphasis. Pursue love today. How on earth do we do that? How can you know this kind of love today? Well, It first starts with realizing that love is more than something we must do and is first and foremost someone we must receive. Someone we must receive. Someone I have to open up all of me to, which feels really risky. Someone I have to surrender myself to, which kind of all love is. Isn't it a bit of a surrendering? When you genuinely love someone, you surrender yourself to them. And remember, this is what Paul will come to time and time again, and this is what we need to come to time and time again, that out of his great love for us, when God became human, he was born in the back alley of a small town to an unmarried couple who spent their early years on the run. And then his first 30 years never made waves. Ordinary carpenter. Maybe the best he was known for was he made really good tables and really bad cabinets. I don't know. But then around age 30, he starts his public ministry. And who does he call? The ordinary. Who does he spend his time with? The outcast. And right when he starts to get momentum around three-ish years into it, he dies. And he's crucified on a Roman cross like a common criminal. Is this another case? As the Atlantic says, the nice guys just finished last. Jesus wasn't awesome. Not how we define awesome today and definitely not how the Corinthian church was defining awesome. But this wasn't a case of nice guys finishing last. Why? Because God did every bit of that on purpose. God came to die and to die for you to make his love available to the outcast, the ordinary, the broken rebels and enemies of God. That's who our God is. And no matter how ordinary you feel, no matter how many times you've been hurt in the past, no matter how many times you've hurt others in the past and the guilt and shame from that spark up, no matter how impossible this sounds, we need to hear this morning, God 
loves you. God loves you. God loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter where you go, God loves you. Such that when we approach Christ, we see love perfected. And we can come to our passage in verses four through seven and read, Christ is patient and kind. Christ doesn't envy or boast. Christ isn't arrogant or rude. Christ doesn't insist on his own way. Christ isn't irritable or resentful. Christ is, does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Christ rejoices with the truth. Christ bears all things. Christ believes all things. Christ hopes all things. Christ endures all things. Christ never ends. This kind of love is what keeps us going. This is the kind of love that actually pursues the good of all rather than the greatness of a few. This is the kind of love that trumps awesome every time. And the resurrected Christ is living proof. And Paul wants us to know that the church can be living proof as well. If we will just receive his love by today saying, I needed you to die for me. I was in the wrong You loved me enough to come and die. I receive that on my behalf. Thank you. And then we can find freedom in Christ when we surrender to his love by saying, and now I need you to direct me in every facet of my life to show me what it really means to love. Then and only then can we go and do likewise. Then and only then, with the motivation of what God has already done for us and his love for us, can we genuinely love others and steward our spiritual gifts with the core motivation of love instead of selfish ambition. Love is better than greatness qualitatively. Love is better than warm feelings definitively. And love is only going to get better for eternity. Choose love. Choose Christ today. Let's pray. Dear loving Father, while we were yet enemies, Scripture says, that's when you died for us because you define true love. Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. And so you became human. You lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died the perfect death. We deserve to die that we might know you and the love you offer for eternity. And now as we wait for the resurrected Christ to return, may you make us into a church who knows how to receive the love of Christ so that we can give the love of Christ to all that we come in contact with, friend or foe alike. Holy Spirit, do your magnificent work of convicting us of our hatred Convict us of our envy. Convict us of our ingratitude. And may we be satisfied in you. God, help us as a church. May we rest in your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.